Good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, my name is Maura Stevens. I'll be hosting the call. Uh, we're in the middle of our week of action on whistleblowers and uh, those who protect and support them. And we're uh, fortunate tonight to be joined by two media luminaries, uh, Jeff Cohen, the founder of FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, and uh, the director of the Park Center for Independent Media, uh, and an author and media critic well-known um, over several decades, as well as with uh, Professor Robert McChesney, Bob McChesney, who has written numerous books and has studied media, and uh, both of them are going to be talking to us about um, how whistleblowers uh, have been treated by the U.S. media, among other subjects. So, uh, wanted to get started by asking both of you. Um, uh, you've both been observing whistleblowers and the media for many years, um, and I think probably the most famous modern whistleblower is Dan Ellsberg, with whom you've been <coughs> working on Roots Action this, this week. Um, maybe Jeff, you can start us off by telling us about that collaboration. Sure. Um, Daniel Ellsberg is very likely uh, the um, original whistleblower in the modern era in our country, one of the most famous whistleblowers in the world. I was watching him. He's on tour with RootsAction.org and Exposed Facts. He's on tour of Europe, and I was watching a half-hour interview with Daniel Ellsberg on a mainstream major television show in Norway. And as I'm watching that, I'm thinking, God, Dan can't get 30 minutes on a major mainstream U.S. television network, and, and he's a U.S. citizen. So, uh, But yeah, Ellsberg, the fascinating contrast, I think, and I've heard um, others make this point, is that when Daniel Ellsberg came forward with the Pentagon Papers, and it was a very unique period in U.S. mainstream media history where the New York Times uh, were publishing these papers during the height of the Vietnam War showing that president after president had lied to the U.S. public about the Vietnam War. And when the New York Times was enjoined from publishing, the Washington Post started publishing. And when they were enjoined, the Boston Globe started publishing these highly classified documents that had been leaked to them by an insider named Daniel Ellsberg. And so you, you contrast this period where mainstream, the mainstream press was in virtual civil dis, committing civil disobedience to get papers out, documents out, highly classified documents out to the U.S. public. Um, and uh, in opposition to the uh, various branches of the U.S. government. And you contrast what happened then in the early 1970s to how Edward Snowden was greeted and how he was pilloried by hosts at MSNBC. Uh, he was called a punk and a coward by Ed Schultz on MSNBC. You had people, uh, New York Times uh, reporters and columnists on national TV talking about how uh, they wished that Snowden had been arrested and that maybe even Glenn Greenwald should be arrested 
And I think it shows a real contrast in how uh, whistleblowers were seen, um, you know, in the early 70s and how they were treated and the complete contempt for whistleblowers in certain sectors of the mainstream media today. It's very, very different. And maybe Bob's got some comments on that. Well, I think you said it really well, Jeff. Uh, you summed it up. And, you know, if you look at the differences from the Ellsberg year, the, 1971 or so, uh, early 70s, you know, you had probably professional journalism as we know it uh, in the United States at its peak in terms of having some independence. Uh, from owners, from from sort of mainstream sources, and, and sort of a bias towards those in power. And the reason for that isn't that journalists were, you know, better, smarter, nicer, cooler, hipper. The reason was that it was a period with tremendous social movements on the ground that had created space uh, in the political culture for dissident ideas, uh, space that hadn't been there 10 years earlier and wouldn't be there 10 years later. It was directly related to yeah. that. And that sort of space doesn't exist today. Yeah. Well, there also the glorification of, of some of the journalists of the day, Woodward and Bernstein, for example, were uh, sort of glorified. There are movies made out of them starring Dustin Hoffman and uh, Robert Redford, and, uh, and and also newspapers that had a lot more clout then, of course, uh, than they do now. Newspapers are sort of the dying part of journalism. Yeah. Uh, but you... Uh, we were just uh, talking with two NSA whistleblowers on an earlier call, um, um, Kirk Wiebe and uh, Bill Binney, and both of them said essentially there's been no mainstream coverage of their stories at all, even though they've um, revealed something that's so critical to the United States public. Uh, most of the coverage they've gotten has been from independent uh, media outlets. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about um, how how the different the difference between the independent media and the corporate media on um, the the recent famous whistleblowers such as uh, uh, Chelsea Manning and um, yeah uh, well you know what Jeff Jeff let me take the first part of that good dealing okay with good corporate media and then you take the independent media side of it yeah uh, mm -hmm. you know the reason why corporate media and mainstream journalism and this would include NPR certainly as well as uh, commercial news media like MSNBC, CNN, Fox, uh, and mainstream newspapers. The reason why they fail to cover or very poorly cover whistleblowers is built pretty much into the logic of the way professional journalism is practiced in the United States, which is that on stories about politics and governance, uh, people in power, journalists get their information from official sources who are people in power. So if people in power are debating an issue or have an issue they want to talk about, then journalists will talk about it and they'll have material to work with. But when people in power don't want to talk about an issue and they clam up about it, uh, then working journalists basically don't have any material to work with. And if they raise an issue that no one in power is talking about, then they're accused of being ideological and unprofessional, having an ax to grind, even if it's something that should be central to what a journalist ought to want to do in a free society, like expose government malfeasance and criminality. And so these sort of stories of all these great whistleblowers who've come forward uh, <clears throat> sort of fall by the wayside, and most major journalists don't even sort of, they've internalized the value. They don't even recognize it as a problem. They say, well, gee whiz. The heads of the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, none of them are talking about this issue. 
Uh, so it's not really an issue. It's sort of a goofy thing. It's like 9-11 conspiracy theories. It's really not legitimate news because no one in power is talking about it. And that means that our mainstream news coverage is uh, effectively atrocious uh, in covering all the great whistleblower stories. And it, it shows the great problem with corporate journalism, with mainstream journalism, such that when these whistleblowers come forward, like we've had this week on, on the on the Stand Up for Truth series, as well as, you know, Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, working journalists in theory ought to be looking to the skies and saying, thank you, dear Lord, for giving this wealth of material I can use now to really do my job and bring truth to the public. Instead, many of them are just continually looking to the ground, oblivious to what's happened or opposing it. It's really one of the great scandals of our times right there. Yeah, and I think that the coziness that Bob describes of elite mainstream reporters with their official sources is another reason why you're standoffish from those unofficial sources that bring forward these embarrassing documents or embarrassing stories is that if you cover this embarrassing story or the story that exposes your official sources, the official sources can retaliate against you that uh, mainstream media has become sort of a conveyor belt for the official line. And if you go outside of that, you get burned. Uh, the New York Times has got <laughs> a lot of these reporters who basically are conveyor belts for what official thinking is and their official sources thinking is. And there's a few reporters at the Times, James Risen's an example, who goes after the the sources in a big institution like the CIA or the Pentagon who have information that is important for the U.S. public to know about, and that information comes from low-level sources who are making the powerful look bad. And James Risen's one of these unusual journalists who, um, who has run up against the establishment. He operates in the New York Times, and he's been punished for it. But so let's move from... Uh, sort of the coziness of the official mainstream journalists and the official institutions and sources that they cover and jump to the good news. And it's what Maura and I uh, research and talk about at the Park Center for Independent Media at Ithaca College. And that's that there has been a real boom in independent media and independent outlets. And these independent outlets as a result of the failure and tim failures and timidity of the mainstream media, a lot of these independent outlets have become more and more important. And when it comes to the issue of whistleblowers who have important documents and important stories and important videos for the U.S. public to have and understand so they have a better grasp of how society and government works, increasingly these sources who have these big scoops are finding that in order to get their scoops to the U.S. public, they have to go to the independent, source, the independent news outlets. And a, a classic example is Chelsea Manning. Uh, Private Manning comes across all of these documents showing U.S. war crimes in Iraq, in Afghanistan, U.S. diplomatic crimes by the State Department under Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, um, how the U.S. is going around uh, Western country after European country after European country 
trying to interfere with their justice system when they're trying to bring charges against torturers and CIA officials who've committed some very, very serious crimes. And so uh, Chelsea Manning, as a private in the Army, comes across this information. And at the trial of Private Manning, we learn uh, that uh, Manning had approached the Washington Post, had approached the New York Times at one of those uh, newspapers, um, Manning couldn't get through to anyone beyond voicemail. And another one of those outlets did get through to someone, and the, and the someone had no interest. And so uh, Manning ends up at this relatively new alternative independent website that's specially set up to protect whistleblowers with documents, and that's WikiLeaks. And so it was fascinating at the trial to learn that Manning uh, had tried to get the information to the New York Times and the Washington Post. Who knows what they would have made of the information. Uh, but WikiLeaks made it global news. And you can jump from uh, Manning and WikiLeaks to when this, these guys had this video, undercover video of candidate Romney telling a bunch of rich folks that half of the country is against him and they're freeloaders. 47% of the public are freeloaders. They're dependent on government. And those, the people with that video, the person brokering it, was looking around at who might do justice to this video and saw that David Korn at the independent outlet, Mother Jones, had been really digging up some incredible stuff about Romney during the uh, Romney-Obama race in 2012, and uh, that broker of this, of this incredible video decided to give it to Mother Jones, and we know the history that Mother Jones did a great job of presenting it, and it changed the direction of the election. And, and then you can jump forward to Edward Snowden. You know, S Snowden uh, was a pretty good student of media, I don't think he trusted mainstream media by the time he was ready to uh, release the documents that he had taken from the inside, uh, from the National Security Agency. And Edward Snowden approached um, Glenn Greenwald, the maverick oppositional independent journalist who was then at The Guardian, but had started as an independent blogger, and also approached Laura Poitras, an independent filmmaker who had been a victim of, uh, you know, had been harassed every border she ever crossed in the previous few years. And Snowden felt that these independent journalists connected to independent outlets would do justice to Snowden's documentation. So the good news is that while mainstream media has become utterly timid and corrupt, that independent media have been more powerful. Part of it is thanks to the Internet and that uh, uh, people with big scoops, insiders, whistleblowers with big scoops, have known that they can go in these independent directions, and uh, it's a wonderful thing to see. Well, there, but on the other hand, there are a lot of uh, heavy prices being paid. Uh, you touched on so many things here, Jeff. Um, I, I want to go back to, well, a couple things. Um, you talked about WikiLeaks briefly, but Julian Assange has been, uh, it's been about three years, he's been um, a political asylee inside the Ecuadorian embassy in London, basically confined to a room. 
for the incredible work that he's done. And there's a we've learned there's a secret grand jury, uh, you know, go, go, trying to build cases against him. And yep. um, why don't you, why don't you talk a little bit about the uh, about what's going on with Julian Assange and WikiLeaks to start with, and then we, yeah. we have a few other well, things that you touched the, on. The, let's the talk to, about yeah, this. The thing to understand about Assange and WikiLeaks is that way before anyone came forward in Sweden with charges or allegations, I should say, of sexual misconduct and sexual assault, before any of that... I was talking about the U.S. grand jury investigating... Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the point I'm making, is that before those charges materialized that have led to his being you know, in semi-asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, England, um, many U.S. leaders, U.S. political figures, leading U.S. media commentators had called for him to be arrested or murdered. And members of the Senate and some of the leading senators had made comments that this guy needs to be prosecuted, he needs to be uh, neutralized, and that's what's important for everyone to understand, uh, that the attacks on Assange and the calls for him to be neutralized and silenced and put out of commission from high uh, levels of U.S. government and media elites, that that began before there were any charges in Sweden. Uh, so, And then there was always these, these discussions and rumors and uh, leaked documents indicating that there is a U.S. federal grand jury uh, that has been uh, trying to drum up evidence and charges about Assange's publishing activities. So I think you're right, Maura, that while, while these independent outlets have had the guts to bring out some of these stories, there is always uh, retaliation uh, by the government. There's been retaliation against WikiLeaks. They've been harassed. Uh, they've been a victim of, a, of corporate censorship. Uh, they couldn't raise money because of a conspiracy involving Visa, MasterCard, PayPal. They were taken off of uh, 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 certain platforms by Amazon. And it was what you would call government-slash-corporate repression against WikiLeaks. And in every one of these cases, you can find retaliation against the, uh, in most of these cases, retaliation against the whistleblower and retaliation against the journalist or outlet that worked with the whistleblower. So I, I want to, speaking of which, uh, you mentioned James Risen, who's a mainstream journalist, uh, a brave mainstream journalist working with the New York Times, and I wanted to go to Bob and ask him, uh, James Risen has been sort of persecuted, but um, more so his source. Can you tell us about his source and what has happened in that case, Jeff? You know, I think, I think I'd like to let Jeff talk about that one if I could, because he's been more on top of it. Okay. I probably turned to him anyway. Go ahead, Jeff. All right. Um, yeah, real quickly, um, James Risen is a reporter, uh, a very unique and unusual New York Times reporter who doesn't cozy up to the people running the U.S. intelligence agencies. 
He's great at finding sources in the middle and lower ranks so that he can inform the American public of what some of these intelligence agencies are doing in our name that is uh, criminal or uh, unethical. And Risen's very unique and has developed a lot of sources. And uh, the source that was accused uh, and prosecuted and convicted in a Virginia courtroom uh, recently is Jeffrey Sterling. Uh, Sterling clearly has been a victim of retaliation on many grounds. Uh, he had great records as a CIA officer. He had uh, uh, accolades from his supervisors. And at a certain point, he filed a, a, a charge uh, that he was being, he's an African-American, that he was being discriminated against by race. And uh, to make a long story short, that was the beginnings of his problems with CIA management. Um, he obviously had some knowledge about this outrageously reckless CIA operation called Operation Merlin, where they were feeding, uh, the CIA was, um, blueprints for nuclear weapons, where they had tampered with it a little, so some of the blueprints were not right, um, but their source, who was a former, I think, Soviet nuclear engineer, nuclear weapons technician, who became a CIA uh, agent, uh, that guy apparently didn't get the news. He sees that he's been asked to deliver these blueprints to the Iranians, and he fixes it so that he's delivering actual helpful blueprints of how to uh, construct uh, parts for a nuclear weapon, and he turns them over to the Iranians. Now, this is something that the U.S. public has a right to know. When the CIA is engaging in reckless conduct, uh, helping to proliferate, we're always told what the CIA is doing to stop nuclear proliferation. Here was an utterly reckless operation that James Risen heard of, probably from one, two, three, or four sources. And uh, the uh, U.S. government had uh, threatened Risen with uh, subpoena, he had subpoena after subpoena. He said, I'm not going to tell you who my source or sources are, period. And uh, RootsAction.org led a campaign on behalf of Risen that was somewhat successful. And then we led a campaign on behalf of Jeffrey Sterling, who was accused of being his source. And Sterling was railroaded. Uh, they had to make an example of Sterling. That's what, you know, the, the Obama administration and the Obama Justice Department knows that if you do not strictly, uh, uh, severely punish these whistleblowers, who give the American public information we need through journalists, if you don't severely punish them, then courage will be contagious, and people that see uh, uh, misconduct and unethical conduct in the highest levels of government will keep coming forward and telling the public what's going on through these independent news channels. So Sterling was railroaded. He was given... We were worried he would get 20 years. I think he ultimately got four, four and a half years, which was still somewhat outrageous. And Bob's an expert on this. The way Petraeus, um, you know, virtually the same month, 
Petraeus, who had mishandled classified information, given it to an author, he was slapped on the wrist. It was actually not a slap on the wrist, as Norman Solomon's always pointing out. It was more like love tap. Um, and so, Petra, you know, Petraeus is given this love tap on the wrist while Jeffrey Sterling is sent away for years. And, Bob, I've heard well, you well, let's, explain... Let's, uh... Let's tell people what we're talking about. We're talking about okay. General David Petraeus, so uh, uh, yeah, military. Okay. I could make that clearer, and then I want Bob, because yeah. Bob's helped me understand this, that, you know, leaking to a journalist isn't a crime. It's, the, you know, who's doing the leaking, what their motives are, what's the motive of the journalist, because if, if you know, publishing classified information was a crime, then Bob Woodward, instead of having won all these awards for all these books, where he quotes the highest levels of the U.S. government leaking him classified information, Woodward would be behind bars instead of a multimillionaire author. But General Petraeus uh, is the guy who had the classified information, shared it with his girlfriend, who was an author, and uh, uh, he was basically slapped on the wrist. He's not doing any jail time. It's the same exact thing that Jeffrey Sterling is going to be doing four years in prison around. And it was just, I think it really showed uh, the way certain whistleblowers and journalists are uh, hounded by the administration and other uh, leakers uh, are, uh, are protected uh, and cherished uh, by uh, the upper levels of the U.S. government. Yeah, I would simply add to what Jeff said that uh, he's absolutely right. I mean, there's the principle of the rule of law does not apply to whistleblowing and to leaking. Uh, it's not like everyone's treated the same. Some people are above the law, the Petraeuses and elites who, who leak stuff to push their mainstream elite agenda, and some people are below the law, uh, the Sterlings, the Snowdens, uh, for whom the law does not apply uh, or is only selectively applied uh, for them in its most onerous manner. The other point I'd make that Sterling case points out is that it's not only criminal activity and unethical activity and truly appalling activity that the government wants to keep secret from the American people. It's also just incompetent activity. It's just yep. sheer, um, you know, total incompetence and scripts that they don't want people to know about. And that is a big part of this, too. The, the less people know, the better is the operative language. And so just, you know, if it gets out just, you know, how incompetent uh, these people are, then Americans probably would say, we've got to really get this house in order. This is absurd. So the less they know, the better. Is there any sort of leak that sort of is outside the mainstream that threatens the legitimacy of the U.S. foreign policy and national security establishment is by definition, you know, a major treasonous crime. Yep. Well, and the mainstream media just uh, uh, perpetuate that because they're uh, they're so incompetent in their uh, reportage, or if, if you could even call it reportage. Now, both of you are journalism educators, um, as well as uh, media critics, and I, I want to know what you see if there's been a, a change over the years in, in how journalism students are taught. It certainly seems there's a major change to me. I'm, I'm in journalism education too, and uh, and how you see um, how how can we further uh, really good reportage and, and investigative journalism at a time when 
Um, it seems to me that most young people who think they're going into journalism are doing something very different from what I consider journalism. So, uh, yeah. Bob, Bob, maybe you can talk about that. What do you sure, see you know, and how can we how can we uh, keep it from getting worse? Well, I would say the great trend that, that you see, and it's not just teaching students who want to be journalists, but I have the privilege of traveling around the country and talking at universities to people, young people who are studying to be journalists. And I think there's sort of two trends that are ever present. One is that there are a lot of young people who want to be journalists, that really want to do great journalism, that really believe in it, that have it in their gut. And then there's also this sort of tragic, quasi-pathetic situation where there really isn't a place to give these people jobs, not enough jobs, certainly. And then the jobs they get don't really do that sort of journalism they want to do. They end up doing uh, uncritical stuff. And, and it, it's an insidious process. You know, we could talk about the collapse of newspapers and, and journalist jobs, so that's an issue here, too. But it's also just a deep, deep-seated one that goes back generations. I'll give a quick story about how this process works. When I was teaching in Madison in the early 90s, I had an excellent undergraduate student who wanted to be a journalist very badly. And she really was a talented kid who wanted to be a great journalist. And she won a very prestigious internship to go to Washington to be the correspondent or to work as an intern uh, in, in the Chicago Tribune or some other major newsroom, but then had a major office in Washington in like 1990 or 91. And she was a great student. She was very critical, and she understood how sources represented mainstream interests. She was going to get alternative sources. She was really, really ready to go. And when she got back from her summer internship, um, we were very good close. She'd been in two of my classes. She sort of was avoiding me, and I didn't understand why. And then finally we ran into each other, and I said, well, how did that internship go? And she was very sheepish. She said, well, you know, the first week or so, I really wanted to use alternative sources when I was covering a story and get other perspectives, but it was like my editors didn't really encourage that, and then they kept piling stuff on for me to do it. I really didn't have time, and pretty much after a few weeks, I forgot all about it. I was just running around doing what everyone else was doing, and it was sort of an, a walking lesson in how they take the spirit out of a journalist if you internalize the values of just going to the, the same old sources of uh, the received wisdom, conventional wisdom, and I think, you know, that is the hardest thing we deal with when we teach journalism is, you know, there's a, there's a journalism that exposes power, gets to the truth, that empowers people to, to govern their own lives in a free society. And that isn't the journalism that many people are paid to do in this society. And it's why the sort of work Jeff does at the Park Center at, at Ithaca is so important. And I only wish we could have jobs for all the people who want to do the journalism that are being uh, going through Jeff's program and that I see all over this country. Yeah, I yeah, think, I think that, that I'm. Yeah, more. I'm sensing the same thing that there's there's a lot of students in uh, journalism education or media studies who want to get in and make a difference, and if they take the mainstream route, especially with the mainstream and financial collapse and laying off journalists, uh, you're really not encouraged to do journalism. And I love that quote. Uh, journalism is printing something that someone in power does not want printed. Everything else is advertising. Um, you know, <laughs> the, the real journalism that a lot of the students want to do 
if they go into the mainstream media. And as Bob said, it's not easy finding a job in the mainstream media because there's so many layoffs. They find that they can't do it. And in the independent media, there's a lot of exciting things happening. But the independent media can't possibly employ the tens of thousands of journalists that we've lost in the last few years uh, who've lost their jobs and been laid off. So uh, the, the good news is that there's places like Mother Jones, nonprofit investigative digging journalism that is either surviving or, or growing. There are new things like The Intercept uh, that are surviving or growing. Uh, and a lot of these places, they're actually hiring. Um, and they're hiring young journalists. They're hiring middle-aged journalists. Um, so the, the good news, I think, is, and this is, it all is incumbent upon us, keeping the Internet uh, free and open, uh, you know, keep maintaining net neutrality so a few companies can't squash independent websites that uh, are not owned by these few broadband providers or favored by those few broadband providers. Um, so as long as we have net neutrality, at least in, in these corners of the media, it's a great time for journalist, journalism students to come out and do work. Uh, I, you know, one of our graduates spent years at Alternet. She loved it. Um, uh, one of our students that Maura and I had at Ithaca College. So the the good news, and and as I was saying at the beginning of this hour, that uh, a lot of the sources with scoops are taking their big scoops to some of these independent outlets, whether it's WikiLeaks or Mother Jones or Glenn Greenwald. That's also exciting. Um, but um, yeah, the the it's a mixed bag uh, in journalism education. There's some journalism educators that are still harping on neutrality, and you know you have to be neutral. You can't ever put a your point of view. Uh, you know you're not supposed to do advocacy of a solution. You're just supposed to report the facts and uh, and report what the people in power. You have to have uh, sources in power, newsmakers. I mean, there's some of that stuff that's still being taught in journalism school, and frankly, I think it's out of date. It's what the establishment wants journalists to believe is journalism. Uh, and, Jeff, and then there's let me people, stop you there. Yeah, sure. I just want to add something about that point you were just making. Uh, back in around uh, 2000, I think it was, or 2001, I went to Europe, to Sweden, uh, to give a series of talks about journalism, and one of them was at one of the largest daily newspapers in Sweden where they had me talk to a lot of journalists, and it just so happened that there were some journalists from uh, Latvia in Lithuania, which was right across the other side of the Baltic, very close yeah. to Sweden, so they, there was a lot of intercourse between those countries. And I was describing the problem of American mainstream journalists, which is that you know our professional code is you basically accurately report what people in power say and don't really go outside what they say uh, for fear of being called unprofessional. But your job is just accurately report what people in power say. And it was so funny because one of the Latvian journalists said, you know, we just had a U.S. you know government trainer come to Latvia to train us to do journalism. And that's what they said we were supposed to do. The free press making covered accurately what people in power are talking about. Right. And, you know, the, the other thing that you're taught in U.S. media, yeah, accurately report 
what people in power are saying and make sure you're balanced and that you go to a leader of the Democratic Party and go to a leader of the Republican Party and accurately yeah. quote what those elite sources are telling you. And the reality is that on issue after issue of major economic policy, major foreign policy, the leadership of the two parties do not disagree. So uh, what, you know, I happen to be in the mainstream media in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq, where the Bush administration and Republicans were pushing for this invasion based on false pretense. And the leading Democrats, whether it was Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, Joseph Biden, Richard Gephardt, they were all pushing for an invasion of Iraq as well. And so if you're practicing official source journalism where you quote the elites of the two major parties on issues like the invasion of Iraq or the Trans-Pacific Partnership or nuclear power or fracking, you know, the leadership of the two parties at the national level are not debating those issues. So you're basically presenting state journalism. And that's, that's unfortunately how we've ended up in the country that invented freedom of the press. I, I'll say I was at an educators conference, a journalism educators conference last October, where um, <clears throat> I was wearing my badge that said I was with the Park Center for Independent Media and uh, several of the journalism educators questioned what that meant. And I listed the names of some of my favorite independent media outlets, Truth Out, Alternate, <clears throat> Common Dreams. Um, and uh, they looked at me blankly. They just had no idea. So I figured, well, I'll, I'll do something more well-known. I'll, I'll mention Amy Goodman from Democracy Now! And they still didn't know who I was talking about. It was pretty yeah. terrifying to me. Um, I want, I want to just insert here uh, that if people have questions. I just got a question um, texted to me, but if anybody on the call would like to type in a question, uh, you please feel free right now. We're getting down to the last 20 minutes of the call. In the center section of your screen, you can type it in, and I'll, I'll read it out uh, to our guests, Robert McChesney and Jeff Cohen. Um, and I, I got one uh, sent to me from Guy in St. Louis. Um, apparently he was on the last call that we had with um, the NSA whistleblowers and he said, I was on the last call. I was struck by the fact that both NSA whistleblowers were retired. I think Dan Ellsberg must be in his 80s. Yes. I think it's up to the 60-somethings and older to lead this fight because younger people have too much at stake and are too frightened. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, there's no doubt that the Weebies and the Binnies and these brave, remember there were several brave whistleblowers from inside the National Security Agency that were warning the, trying to warn the public through Congress and through journalists about the mass surveillance. They didn't have access to the kind of or the ability to liberate the kind of documents that Edward Snowden did a couple years ago. Uh, but these brave uh, whistleblowers inside the NSA, they'd been Tom there a while and they knew that, you know, the NSA did have uh, no, there were people in the leadership of the NSA that knew the difference between, you know, targeted surveillance of enemies 
and terrorists and spying on every American without any suspicion of wrongdoing or crime. And so sometimes it, it requires these people like, uh, uh, you know, Weeby and uh, Benny, who'd been in there a while, to realize this is unacceptable. This is a real change. This is a real affront to uh, the First Amendment. And sometimes the young people that join an institution, I saw this when I worked inside the mainstream media, the young people that join an institution uh, that's already somewhat corrupt don't have the institutional memory to know that this is wrong and I need to blow a whistle on this. Um, so there is, I, I understand in a certain sense that it's going to require uh, sometimes uh, people who are middle-aged to lead the way and show the courage to blow the whistle when something wrong is going on in these big institutions. Bob, did you want to add anything to that? Well, it's hard to top what Jeff just said. I think you agree with that. But I think the important point was one that was made earlier uh, with Sterling, which is simply that the government obsession with clamping down on whistleblowers uh, is to no small extent because they know once there's any sort of critical mass, people in the public see how, what, what is actually being protected on one hand, and other people working in government realizing that, you know, they, are, they have an obligation really ethically to step forward and share this, uh, like Snowden, like Sterling, like Benny, uh, that, that, that you could have a tidal wave. And so that's why this exceptionally uh, onerous uh, attack on whistleblowers is taking place. Yeah, I think the reason that they were almost torturing, remember the United Nations had to intervene uh, and uh, protest the way that Manning had been treated in custody in the, by the U.S. military. And I think what they were trying to do was to torture him to roll over and say, oh, WikiLeaks did it all. It wasn't me. You know, WikiLeaks told me how to do everything. And it was WikiLeaks. And uh, and uh, Manning wouldn't roll over, um, and they threw the book at Manning, and then you you know you can jump forward to uh, Sterling, and, and, and jump all the way up to Snowden, and Snowden was someone who, uh, when he came forward, and I want to point out that RootsAction.org uh, was one of the first groups in the email saying you're no you're not a criminal. We thank you for what you did, Edward Snowden, and delivered a huge petition to Snowden showing that thousands of U.S. citizens considered Snowden a hero. Um, but um, Snowden uh, was uh, someone that they had to make an example of, even while they were f pretending that they were blasé. So when Snowden's revelations were going around the world in the first days, there was a news conference where President Obama was asked about Snowden. And as is common with presidents of the United States, whether their names are uh, Obama or Bush or Johnson or Nixon, um, they tend to lie. And Obama was asked, what are you going to do about Snowden? And Obama says, uh, let me see if I can get you the exact words. I'm not going to be scrambling military jets to go after a 29-year-old hacker. 
I'm not going to start wheeling and dealing and trading on a whole host of other issues simply to get a guy extradited. And everything he said in those sentences was a lie because immediately they were leaning on the government of Ecuador. They were leaning on all these Latin American countries. Do not give Snowden. We will retaliate if you give Snowden asylum. And then it turns out, in terms of scrambling military jets, when they thought that Snowden may be heading to Latin America on a plane uh, of the president of Bolivia, Evo Morales, the U.S. government, with its allies, I think France was one, uh, I think Germany might have been another, Spain, they brought down the plane. They literally brought down a presidential plane. So this idea um, uh, that Obama was sort of blasé uh, uh, about Snowden, the reality is that they have to go after these people. When you have a warfare state, as we have had all these years, you're going to have a surveillance state. You can't do one without the other. And if you have a warfare state and a surveillance state where millions of people are giving high, given high security clearances, the only way for the U.S. public to break through that, uh, that it, uh, the various levels of secrecy is if whistleblowers come forward and talk about war crimes, talk about State Department crimes, talk about the crimes of the surveillance state. And so the retaliation against these individuals and the journalists who work with them, we should remember that Greenwald has been harassed, Greenwald's husband uh, was terrorized at the London airport, and they thought he had uh, documents from Snowden that were being delivered to Greenwald. We know that the London Guardian was, brought, uh, you know, was sort of uh, invaded under British law, and they were made to destroy all these computer hard drives. So, Laura you know, Poitras. From the, yeah, for, and it, Laura Poitras, the filmmaker who worked with Snowden, even before she ever heard from Snowden, she was being harassed at every border she crossed because she had done work on U.S. Uh, war crimes and, and torture. So the retaliation against whistleblowers or the journalists who do this kind of independent uh, reporting has been intense, and that's part of what we, you know, those of us, uh, Bob is, and I are roughly the same age, you know, those of us who uh, grew up in the Vietnam War era knew that you cannot have a permanent warfare state without repression. You know, that the wars overseas breed repression against journalism at home and against free speech at home, and that's what we've been witnessing. I'd also and add to that, uh, Maura, I knew someone uh, who worked very high up in the State Department during the uh, first uh, Obama term, and he was uh, working there when uh, the WikiLeaks uh, story first broke, and Assange was uh, the public enemy number one. And he was in the room uh, when the very top people in the State Department were debating and discussing what they should do uh, with Assange and towards WikiLeaks. And, you know, to hear the way he described it to me, it was like they were discussing, you know, prospective military attack. Uh, they, yeah. These people were regarded, the whistleblowers were regarded as enemies of the national security state and therefore, you know, treated uh, like you would expect someone who's going to do a physical violence against this country. 
That's right. And, and you know, since we're uh, Bob and I come out of a media background and media critic background, it's important for us to talk about how mainstream media, main, elite journalists commit the same, quote, crime, unquote, that has been committed by these uh, these people who are being hounded. And the, there's a big difference. Like when Bob Woodward, think about the run-up to the invasion of Iraq. In the run-up to the invasion of Iraq, you had people uh, in around Colin Powell in the State Department who were leaking uh, classified information to reporters, and always called unnamed sources, anonymous, a source said, a source close to uh, so-and-so said, um, they were leaking information to try to uh, stop or, or delay an invasion of Iraq. Meanwhile, Cheney and, uh, and his people were leaking classified information uh, trying to get the invasion going. But in each case, it was elite government officials taking classified information uh, giving it to elite journalists who are willing to play this faction in the in the government elite against this other faction in the government elite, and that's how the New York Times and Washington Post uh, uh, get stories month after month after month. They're getting uh, classified information, but because it's sort of this little faction against this little faction, and these journalists doing it are playing that game, even though they are doing the same act, the same, quote, crime, none of them ever get prosecuted, and none of them ever will. But uh, to, to go to the people that do get prosecuted, when a James Risen at the New York Times, or gets, uh, victim, uh, you know, uh, legal... Uh, measures taken against them. James Risen is someone who's ready to expose what are the major flaws in the national security state, period. When Glenn Greenwald's operating, it's, you know, he's, he's looking at what are the flaws in the system, period. He's oppositional. He's not helping one faction in the leadership against another faction in a little gentleman's fight. And and the same thing with Assange, uh, Assange and WikiLeaks. They wanted to expose wholesale the crimes of U.S. foreign policy, and they did it. And so uh, people need to understand that the, while the acts are the same, when a journalist gets something that's not fully classified and reports on it, the people that are playing the inside baseball game at the New York Times and the Washington Post will never be victims of legal measures, whereas uh, the Greenwalds, the Laura Poitrises, the WikiLeaks, and the James Risens will be victims of legal pressure. Well, yeah, what I would add, go ahead. Just add um, to that, yeah, I would just add to what Jeff said that you know this is really uh, a good measuring uh, rod or measuring stick to apply to other media like MSNBC, for example, the, the cable channel, which on certain issues when it comes to beating up on the Tea Party and how stupid Republican presidential candidates are, uh, you know, it's an outstanding news source uh, in some of the programs. But they're extraordinarily reticent to take on this issue in anything close to a systematic manner. And oftentimes, as Jeff pointed out, some of the programs are just completely in bed with the national security state. 
Yeah, it was something to behold when uh, MSNBC uh, faced with the standoff between their beloved President Obama and the U.S. national security regime and this lonely, brave, young whistleblower, Edward Snowden, that on program after program, and I, I wrote a column about this that you can find anywhere, Huffington Post, Common Dreams, Alternet, it was called, How Do You Know When President Obama Is Lying, MSNBC Won't Tell You. And I documented how host after host stood with the regime, the national security state, and were just blasting. Uh, Edward Snowden, he doesn't love his country. He's unwilling to face the the repercussions of his actions. He's a punk. He's a coward. This was on the alleged liberal TV network. <laughs> right, and it, well, that was two years two years ago today. Actually, the first Snowden yes. disclosures were uh, came out, and he has a he has an op-ed in the New York Times today. The world says no to surveillance. Um, there, and so, but he he's still uh, not in the clutches. Um, he's yep. still doing good work. He's still writing. He's still uh, exposing ills. Uh, Greenwald and Scahill and Poitras are still doing their work. Um, you're still doing your work. The whistleblowers from the NSA and EPA are still doing their work, and we still have a lot of great independent media. Um, you. you um, uh, speaking about young journalists who are really doing amazing work, uh, tomorrow evening at 5 p.m. will be the last of this week uh, of calls, and uh, young uh, Kevin Gostola, who has who, who yes. has covered every single day of the court drama of Chelsea Manning uh, for Fire Dog Lake. Um, he has a weekly podcast called Unauthorized Disclosure. I don't think he's 25 years old. I don't know how old he is. He's very young. He's extraordinary. Uh, he writes about whistleblowing and WikiLeaks and secrecy. And uh, he'll he'll be on uh, the call tomorrow at 5 p.m. Um, the same number. Uh, go to StandUpForTruth.org to get on the call again. Um, he'll be on with EPA whistleblower Marsha Coleman Adebayo, who writes for. Uh, um, uh, Black Agenda Report as an editor for them and uh, exposed some uh, e EPA uh, environmental harms in its vanadium mining in South Africa about a U.S. Yep. company when EPA ignored the uh, the evidence about that. She sued and won a jury verdict finding the EPA guilty. Anyway, they'll be on at 5 o'clock, hosted by George Friday, and um, I hope people will join that. Uh, and uh, all of these calls will be archived, um, uh, available at rootsaction.org. And further information about um, this whistleblowing support is at standupfortruth.org and at rootsaction.org. All of these groups need people's support. So please, um, please support them with your money, with your letters, with your uh, sign-ons to petitions and um, I want to thank our great guests tonight and let them uh, sign off with last thoughts. Uh, first, we'll go with Jeff Cohen, and then with okay. Bob McChesney. So something quick, yeah, we my, have two minutes left. And thank you, Maura Stevens, for doing this. Um, uh, my final thought is that uh, I know that if people are listening to this call, this webcast, 
they're active citizens. I'm sure they're voting citizens. They're people that have worked in campaigns. Maybe they've organized protests and public meetings and town meetings. I think what we've learned is something that exposed facts and roots action have been stressing, that another part of being an active citizen is to urge whistleblowing, uh, to protect whistleblowers when they come forward. Uh, to to tell your friends and neighbors and relatives who might work in big corporate institutions or government institutions if they see something wrong inside their institution to say something. And so supporting whistleblowing is another aspect of being an active citizen. And I would add to that simply that uh, most Americans uh, uh, want whistleblowing. They want to know what's going on in their government. They approve of whistleblowing. When, it's, when they understand it as an issue, they're allowed to have an opinion on. Uh, we are in the majority on this issue, as we are in most progressive issues in this country, uh, and we're fighting a very small and dangerous elite. Well, that's a really good point, Bob. But we have to find our inner courage, because uh, without our inner courage, we are all doomed. So taking uh, heart from the wonderful people who have come forward, those who have... Uh, gotten away relatively unscathed, and those who are, are in jail or elsewhere, uh, I mean, I think they can live with themselves and uh, and, yeah. uh, and and be proud of the people they are, and we can be proud of them and supportive of them, and, and of, of the journalists who cover them and for those who, who keep uh, speaking truth to power. So, yeah, And yeah. you two are, are great examples of that. You've been two of my heroes for a long time, and I'm happy to be on the phone with you, and Thank everybody who's tuned in, and uh, wish you all a good night. Thank you. Thank you all. Bye-bye.